You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. Luke chapter 24, verses 50 through 53. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Grass withers, flower fades, word of our God stands forever. So last week we looked at this section of the scripture and we just immediately launched into a, a discussion of the, the grander, the more of a systematic theology, the grander idea of the implications of the ascension and what it means that Christ in his resurrected body as the God-man going through death, burial, resurrection now ascends and as we confessed this morning in the Apostles' Creed, sits at the right hand of the Father from whence he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Or if you like old westerns, the quick and the dead. He will will return, though he's going to come from, to judge the living and the dead. So we covered kind of that broad topic of the ascension and we flew through a lot of content. But when I got done, as I kind of warned you it might, I we didn't really dig into some of the specifics of the text. And I I want to be a faithful exegete. I I want to be, as a a pastor, as a minister up here, I want you to be able to go home and say, this is the text we looked at, and here's the things that this text says to us. And so last week was kind of, we, we went on this text, but we kind of just talked about a broad idea of the ascension. But this morning, what I, what I want you to be able to do every week, really, is to be able to go home and Wednesday, somebody says, well, what would you talk about at church? Well, I don't really remember, but I know the text. And so if we could get the text out, you'd be able to read it and say, oh, yeah, we talked about this and this and this and see it for yourself in the text. And so having that conviction, we're, we're back in here because I want us to see some of the incredible things that are, are said here by Luke as he wraps up this text. We have worked our whole way right through the gospel of Luke. We've taken our time. We haven't rushed all that much. We've just kind of plugged and, and plotted our way along through the gospel of Luke. And Luke has emphasized that he has one hope for his readers When he's writing to Theophilus, he wants him at the very beginning of Luke chapter 1, he he says, having observed these things for some time now, O most excellent Theophilus, I have undertaken to write these things to you so that you might have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And Luke's mission is just to put on display, look at Jesus. Here he is. Look at Jesus. Look at what he has done. He's expressed this desire for Theophilus. He has certainty concerning the things he has been taught. So we have worked our way through this gospel and we have worked to show Jesus. And and I'm working, look and see. 
Here's who Jesus is. We've seen him as the son of the Virgin Mary and Joseph going back to the birth narrative. We've seen his forerunner, John the Baptist, the emphasis of his ministry, preaching repentance and then pointing away and saying, it's not me, someone's coming behind me who's greater than me, pointing to Jesus. We've seen this emphasis from the ministry of John the Baptist. We've seen Jesus, I mean, and you could just hopefully Grab your gospel and look, and look back through here and see all of these incredible instances of Jesus having authority over sickness. He has authority over sin. He forgives it to the scandal of the Pharisees. He has authority over nature. He tells natural occurrences to be still. He has authority over supernatural forces. These things they couldn't understand. Demonic possessed people, Jesus sends the demon away. He has authority over supernatural forces. We've seen Jesus have authority over death itself. That this God man walking around on earth, that if, if someone has died and he wants to raise them, what does he do? He resurrects, he raises them, doesn't resurrect them, but they get, they, they, they will die again, but he brings them back to life. He has authority over death itself. We've heard him teach like no one else has ever taught. They, they remark, no one has ever taught like this with such authority and reinterpreting, taking, taking the, what they had thought of the Old Testament passages and says, and saying things like, you've heard it said, but, but I say to you, He's taught like no one else has taught. We've seen him take on the proudly religious Pharisees. And we've seen him then love the lost and the lonely and the unlovable. We've seen him agonize over his role in redemption at the garden. But yet forge ahead and shoulder his work and walk into his sacrificial death on a cross. We've seen his obedience to the Father's will. Not what I would do, but Father, your will be done. And then we've seen him resurrected from the dead. Think of all that we've seen in the Gospel of Luke, of this, this incredible, exalted man who is God, in, incarnate, in flesh. Look, Luke has worked hard with great and important detail at showing us who Jesus is and what he has done. Jesus is none other than the one true God in human flesh. When we talk about him being God's son, we don't mean he's less than God or some actual progeny of God. He is the eternal God in the mystery of the Trinity. His role is as God the Son, but he is as much God as God the Father is, sharing one being in essence, but distinct in person, the one true Yahweh God of the Old Testament in flesh. He is the beloved Son who has come to rescue sinners. We've heard his call for his disciples to take up their cross and follow him wherever he would lead them. We also see a Jesus who warns the unrepentant, right? I mean, this is kind of, a, it's one of the shocking things of the gospel of Luke is that somebody says, well, Jesus is just, you know, always had nice, fluffy, kind things to say. And then you pick up the gospel of Luke and he's talking about uh, just the wrath that is coming for the unrighteous servants, we see a kind yet also a severe Jesus saying things like there is a narrow door. There is a door into the kingdom, but it is a narrow door. It is a narrow door and that that narrow door is himself. 
He is the way into the kingdom. And embracing of him is the only safe place that there is to be. To be outside of Jesus is to be under the wrath of God. These are the messages that come to us from the gospel of Luke. And then we see him. Luke has shown us and given us this narrative of this narrow door, this Savior crucified for sinners. The sacrifice of, of God, he, God bearing the punishment for men's sin. This Jesus is lifted up on the cross, cries out, it is finished upon the cross. The temple curtain, we've seen it torn in two. And that which separates God from his people is removed through the work of Christ so that the people of God and God can be reunited through the work of Christ. We've seen Jesus laid in a tomb and mourned over. Yet this same Jesus is the one that we've seen resurrected, the very same Jesus, resurrected in victory over sin, death, and Satan. He has triumphed over the grave, and then now here we are. That was my run-through, where we've been for three and a half years. The Gospel of Luke, just showing Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at who he is. Look at what he's done. Look, at the, look what the God-man has accomplished. And then now, look where the God-man ascends to. He now goes to sit at the right hand of the Father. We see him ascend to his throne, into heaven, is how Luke says it here at the end of his Gospel of Luke. That's where he's going to take the rest of the New Testament is going to show us in the book of Acts how that is ascending into the, to the right hand of God the Father. Now, the question... That wasn't out of this text. That was the whole gospel. Out of this text, the question comes to us, what will this produce in his followers? What does all this do? I mean, okay, here it is. Look at Jesus. Look at all these things that have happened. Look at this narrative of his life events. Look at what he has done for sinners. Look at him crucified. Look at him buried. Look at him resurrected. Look at him ascended. And now what does it do to his people? Look, 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 look at Jesus. And now the question is, what does it produce in his followers? And then consequently, what should it produce in us? If we're looking, looking and looking, what will it produce if we truly see him? What does truly seeing Jesus produce in a person? We've been looking and looking, but do we see? Do you see? These disciples have been looking and looking and walking with him. And now they see it. They see it. They see the full picture. They finally see the full picture. And what does it produce in him? And I'll admit, this has been my goal for three and a half years. And it still is my goal today. I just want to put Jesus before you. I want to get up here and just say, look at this Savior. Look at this incredible God that we have. Look, look, look. And the, and the prayer is that you would look and by looking, you would see it. You can, you can read through this. And we know plenty of people that read through the Bible, read through the gospel, hear the stories of Jesus, and they look at it, but they never see. They never see, oh, this is who Jesus is. I, I've looked, I for years looked and looked and looked, but finally, finally saw, oh, this is who Jesus is. I want to put Jesus on full display. There are tons of topics 
tons of concerns to bring up, but there is one central and urgent necessity for a church to be about. We have one unique message. I have really one thing to offer you on a Sunday morning, and it is to put before you the reality of Jesus Christ of who God is, that you might see him and embrace him. I can give you life tips for days. I don't know that I would take them from me if you knew me real well. I could pour them out. Thank you, my wife's laughing the loudest. That's why I have her here. <laughs> Preach, she says, yeah. And I have life tips to give you, but what I can do is placard Christ. We gather to just see him, to see him. And that we would embrace him. And what happens then when we see Jesus? You can get encouragement from many friends. The church is unique, though, in its message and exaltation of Jesus Christ. So we dug into Luke for three and a half years with the prayer that Jesus would be on full display and seen by all who would show up. Why? What does seeing Jesus then truly bring into life? And there's three things in this text that it does to them when they see Jesus. Three things that it does to them when they see Jesus for who he is. First thing it is that, they, that happens when they see Jesus is that when they, they receive this blessing, right? You see right there in the text. And this is kind of the benediction. I don't do a very good job of it. If you go into a, a more liturgical church, there is this formal benediction, well, they'll, they'll outstretch their hands towards you and give you a, it's a blessing that they're giving to you. Nothing magical per se about it, but it's just, it's speaking a blessing at you as you leave. And I say at the end, you know, now may the peace of God given by faith in the vicarious life and death of Christ be yours. That's a benediction, a, a, a blessing that as you go, the peace of God given by faith and the vicarious, the substitutionary life and death of Jesus Christ be yours. Well, Jesus does this. He, he blesses them. It's, it's, it's a long tradition in the Jewish people of, of this benediction. So he gives them this blessing. But look how many times that word occurs, right? We've got verse 50. He lifts up his hands. He blesses them. 51, while he blessed them. And then you see down in 53, your translation might say praising God, but the ESV translated as blessing God. He blesses, he blesses. What does that lead to? They leave blessing God. Seeing blessing, when you, what do you see? What are they seeing here? Seeing blessing from God leads to the blessing of God. Seeing this blessing from Jesus leads to the blessing of God. Jesus, he blesses them, lifts up into heaven, continuing to bless them. They have truly received blessing from Jesus. And that's, I don't think just this momentary benediction is a blessing from Jesus. Jesus's life has been about blessing his people. The next time Jesus comes, he comes in judgment. We know that, that he's coming again as the creed confesses to judge the, the living and the dead. He, he's going to return as, as the just, righteous judge. And the, the, the end of all things will be wrapped up and the righteous, the sheep and the goats, there'll be a dividing and they'll, he comes in judgment at his second coming. But this coming, he is here in blessing because he is giving his life as a sacrifice for his people. They've truly received a blessing. In his incarnation, Christ worked for the blessing of God's people. He did not come to judge the world, but to rescue his people by the offering of himself for their sins. And he does come again to judge the world, but that's his next appearing. 
Here, Christ gives a blessing and leaves in continued blessing upon his people. This is his posture toward those who are his. One of blessing. A, 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 a blessing of, of, of goodwill, a blessing towards them. What then is their response? If you've been looking all through the gospel of Luke, see the blessing that it is that, that a savior would rescue you out of a situation through which you cannot rescue yourself. That is a blessing. <laughs> It is a blessing that Christ would take your suffering, your, your sin, your punishment upon himself by his free grace that you might have fellowship, right standing with the creator of the universe and not come under his judgment. Hello, that's blessing. And he has blessed. Well, what happens when you see the blessing of God coming towards you? Well, you bless him back. You praise him for what he's done. That's what happens to them. When you, when you see Christ for who he is and know what he has done for you, you cannot help but bless his name. You cannot help but praise him back. Your speech is compelled to honor him. So we have to ask, does our speech bless God? Do we speak in ways that bless God? Do your conversations honor him? Is there ever a moment in your week where you actually are blessing, praising God? If, if not, you have to ask, am I seeing the blessing that's come my way? If, if you are living a life that has no voice of blessing towards God, I'd be praying for eyes to see because you're not, eyes that see how greatly God has blessed you Result in a voice that blesses God for what he has done. Do you praise him for what he has done? If not, you are not seeing him for who he is. So blessing, seeing this blessing from God leads to the blessing of God. Secondly, seeing Jesus for who he is produces worship. Worship. They, they leave while he's blessed them, he parts from them, carried up into heaven. Verse 52, and they worshiped him. Didn't think greatly of him. Didn't have a lot of respect for him. Didn't say, Jesus is my homeboy. You know, they weren't, they weren't real, you know, Jesus is my co-pilot. I'm so glad I have somebody flying alongside of me. I'm so, Jesus is my coach. They worshiped. Worshiped. That's a, that's a, that's a, a term of, of honor uh, to the level of deity. They are worshiping Jesus as God. All, he produces worship. Now, all three of these that we're going to talk about are tied together. And, and these first two are very closely related. Blessing God, worshiping God, they go hand in hand. If you see him for who he is, you praise him, you worship him. Now, there's two ways worship happens. There's narrow worship and broad worship, okay? So this is, this is getting a little more systematic on you this morning, but there's two ways of worship. There's narrow worship and there's broad worship. Worship in the narrow sense is right here, right now. We have gathered, I hope you've gathered, to worship God. That's the narrow sense of worship, that you have gathered to pay attention to his word, to sing songs to him. Like when we gather to, to sing hymns, it isn't just that I like to hear all your voices, which I like to do, but I, and, I, and I hope you all have gathered not to try to work out a beautiful harmony or anything like that, but 
We are gathering to sing songs to our God who deserves all of our praises. That's the narrow sense of worship. We have gathered to worship. This is a worship service. We gather together for the specific purpose of praising, worshiping God. We do it through confession, through prayer, reading of scripture, singing songs, listening to preaching, the observance of communion, the giving of our resources. All of these are done in this specific narrow act of worship. It's popular today to think that you can worship God on your own. You know, that, that worship is something I have, you know, happens between me and God out somewhere out in nature or me and God on our own. You know, that's, that's, where, I, that's where I worship. But you see, worship in this sense of, of, of giving a narrow worship to God has always happened amongst the gathered people of God. Worship in this narrow sense has always happened among the, the, narrow, the gathering of the people of God. If, if you see Jesus for who he is, you will want to join others in recognizing his worth and worshiping him with them. If you see him for who he is, you want to join. I want to, I want to raise my voice with you. Even in my court preaching, I want to, hopefully there's something in you that is an agreement and you want to, with me, worship this God who has blessed us. We want to worship. That's this narrow sense of worship. So when I say that, yes, those in your life that you know that have no interest in the church gathering, and we all have them, or they have maybe a marginal interest in the church gathering, they are not seeing Jesus for who he is. That's a hard statement, but I'll just say it. Because it lets you know where the area of need is at. If you see him for who he is, you want to get with other people to praise this God who has blessed you, who has, has given to you. You want to worship. That is the response of them. They worship him. And in this narrow sense, yes, they are missing something in their understanding of him. In those moments, instead of pointing our fingers out there, maybe we'll point our fingers in here a little bit. In those moments when you may woke up and thought, eh, I'm not so excited to come to church this morning. In that moment, there is something missing in your sight of him. You're not seeing. You're not seeing this God for who he is. Your eyes are blinded in that moment to the reality of who Jesus is. That's this narrow sense of worship. Seeing Jesus for who he is produces the worship of Jesus. That's the narrow sense. The broad sense is that in a very real way, as Romans 12 tells us, we, our lives are living sacrifices. Our lives are an act of worship. You live every day in worship of something. That's the broad sense. And we could talk more about that. We don't have time this morning. But there's the, the two different ways. I wanted to emphasize there is this narrow sense of I want to worship him when I see him for who he is. What Luke has been working on all along. Lastly, seeing Jesus for who he is produces joy. Now, I read over this three or four weeks and didn't, didn't, didn't see this, didn't think about this. But seeing Jesus for who he is produces joy in all circumstances. Think about what's just happened with these disciples. Think of all they've gone through. Think of, the, they're witnessing the crucifixion. Terr ter terrified, torn with grief, 
and then he raises from the dead. And they see him for 40 days and they learn from him. And Jesus is back. And then he leaves. I'll be like, uh, hey, I was real excited you were here. And now you've left us. My reaction in that moment is not joy. My reaction in that moment is, what in the world do I do now? But these disciples, something has happened in their lives that even with the physical absence of Jesus from their fellowship produces in them joy. They've just been abandoned by Jesus. From that perspective, from this worldly perspective, he just took off. They've been left as orphans. Yet Christ has left them, but they depart, verse 52, with great joy. How? How can in this moment they have this great joy? Well, the only understandable answer is that they have truly seen Jesus for who he is. And therefore, they have a joy that no momentary circumstance can squash. Seemingly abandoned, they know what this God has done. They know what their God has done. They know what their Savior has done. They know the work that he has accomplished. And they know that he now sits at the right hand of God on the throne of majesty to rule the world. And will one day return and consummate his kingdom. These disciples... Seemingly abandoned, they know who their God is, Savior is, and they have unswervable joy in their knowing of Him. How easily is our joy stolen? Far too easily. I'll speak for myself. How easily does joy just evaporate? How quickly, when we lose tangible blessings, the good things that are going on in our lives, how quickly when we lose those tangible blessings does our joy in Christ disappear right along with it. But here are these disciples. After all they'd been through, 40 days of spending time with Jesus, he leaves, and yet they bless him, bless him worship him, and overflow with joy. How? They have seen him. They have looked. They have seen. Therefore, they bless him. They worship him and they have a joy that cannot be stolen because they see who Jesus is for them. What are you desperate for? What are you desperate for? What do you, what, what do you feel like you have to have? What do you really want? What do you really need? Luke is telling us that what he wants for his readers, what you really need is to see Jesus for who he is and all that he has done. He is the God-man come to rescue sinners like you and like me. He's the God-man who conquered sin and death to liberate you and me. He is the God-man who ascended into heaven where he rules all things and secures the final joy for you and for me. Open your eyes and see his love on display and rest your soul in him. All along, Luke has been laboring and working to show us, to show Christ to us. May we, by grace, see him. Not just look, but see. See him for who he is and all that he has done. That it would produce in us worship, adoration, and secure in us an undiminishable and unswerving joy in him today and forever. Let's pray. God, right now,
Open our eyes. As Paul prays there in Ephesians for the church, believers, prays for continued that, that you would flood the eyes of their heart with light, that they might, their eyes might be enlightened to know the hope to which you have called them, the riches of the inheritance in the saints and the incomparably great power available for those who believe. And here this morning, God, we pray, give us eyes to see this Savior, this one who has blessed us in a way that is next to inconceivable, the love that has been given to rescue us. God, here this morning, as we come to communion, as we sing our closing song together, as we meditate, as we repent, God, give us eyes to see. Give us the in unsquashable joy that there is in Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.